Welcome to Hunting Stories, brought to you by Late to the Game Outdoors. Everyone loves a good story, and hunters have some of the best. Our whole mission is to collect and share great stories from hunters just like you, to entertain and keep you motivated all year long. So, pull up a seat around the campfire, because here we go. All right, welcome to Hunting Stories. I'm your host, Eric. This is episode two and the first official story since episode one was like the the get to know your podcast episode, which is apparently a thing. Anyway, today, telling the story of my 2017 Arizona archery bull elk hunt, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite stories to tell. Uh, it, there was a whole lot of firsts wrapped up in that story. So it was my first kill with a bow ever. Uh, it was my first elk, actually. Uh, my The first hunting film I ever made. Uh, it was just, just a whole lot came together all at once in that hunt. And it was amazing. So without further ado, here we go. I was hunting northern Arizona because that's where elk are, and uh, it, it was somehow, it's a, a freak thing, like, uh, for the unit I always put in as my top choice in Arizona, which is a draw system for elk, uh, it, it's usually like three to five-ish years between drawing tags. Somehow, I had drawn a tag in 2016, and then drew that same tag in 2017. I don't know what happened, but I was grateful. Uh, 2016, I was hunting the same spot, had a couple close calls, uh, drew on a couple of elk, but it never came together. There was never a good shooting lane. Uh, it was so close, but just didn't happen. So 2017, I was super pumped to go back into the same area. And at the same time, I had all this other pressure in my head that I had just launched late to the game. I was out there with cameras for the first time, and I was thinking like, man, how, <laughs> how am I going to figure this out? But I was out there hunting with uh, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law in, in this section of woods that we know really well and that we love. And so uh, the way we would typically hunt, that, that trio of us, is we would walk out in the dark. Uh, my father-in-law likes to hunt from a tree stand. So we would kind of walk out and drop him off at his stand. And then my brother-in-law and I would kind of go out as a duo and uh, we would just stay out all day long. So we would chase him in the morning and do some calling. And then by the late morning, early afternoon, we would just kind of sit down and take a little nap and, and rest up. And then again, late afternoon, we would get up and sort of loop our way back to where the truck was uh, while trying to catch up with some elk. So uh, first day, nothing much happened. Uh, didn't didn't see much, didn't hear much. Uh, we, we saw a few, we got into them, but they weren't really calling. They didn't really care about our calls. Uh, day two, they, they started uh, firing up, like a lot more bugles in that morning. Uh, a couple close calls, but could never really seal it or get, get the wind right. Uh, by day three, uh, these huge winds were starting to pick up. Like, not just kind of blustery or gusts of wind, like just sustained 10 to 15 mile an hour winds with, with gusts above that, uh, which made it a lot harder to call. And uh, made my father-in-law not want to sit in a tree all day, just sitting there waving around, getting seasick. Uh, so he took a couple days off to kind of hang back at, at the cabin and just rest. And, and my brother-in-law and I went, went out chasing elk every day. And as we're trying to call and, and get them involved, uh, we, we were relying mostly on cow calls. Well, I, I should clarify, he was relying mostly on cow calls because he told me early on after he heard the cow call sounds I was making that I should get better or shut up. So 
I couldn't get better immediately and just kind of left the calling to him. Uh, now it's this, this area is sort of like, it's not really glassable. There's not really big mountains or drainages. It's just kind of like flat sort of rolling hills and like pockets of thick timber scattered by like more open timber. Like it's kind of just broken up country. Um, and, and so we could call and we could get them interested, but we got the same thing every time where like they'd be 80 to hundred yards out. They would look right at us cause they heard the cow calls, didn't see a cow. And so hung up, like I'm sure every elk hunter who's done any amount of elk hunting has seen this scenario play out. Once they can see where a sound's coming from, if they don't see what they should be seeing, they get suspicious and they move on. So we dealt with that for the first three days, at least. Uh, Finally, by like the end of day three, we were noticing like there was this area kind of over by where my father-in-law's tree stand was where he kept seeing elk moving through the same corridor behind him way out of range they weren't going to they weren't coming into him but he could see them moving every day so we kind of just went that direction and decided to sort of like hunker down and sit quietly more ambush style and that morning sure enough a bunch of elk came moving by and they went by me at about 100 yards but they were heading straight for this other side of this like clear meadow where my brother-in-law was sitting back in the timber a little ways and so I watched this big, beautiful bull go walking back into there. And I thought at any second, like, I'm just going to hear chaos and elk moving because it's walking right towards him. He's going to get a shot. Turns out what had happened was he, sure enough, this bull came in with a few of his cows and he went behind this little spindly pine tree. My brother-in-law came to full draw and the elk did that thing elk do so well where he like brought his head onto the other side of the tree and stopped right there. So my brother-in-law sitting there at full draw, just waiting for this elk to take its last step. Well, that that has poetic meaning, I suppose. Uh, you know, waiting for that one more step so that he could get a, a shot at the vitals. And one of the cows uh, was was wise to him, was alert that something was not right, something was going on. Uh, and so she kind of blew out a little bit and got everyone on edge. That elk, that bull never took another step forward but just kind of looked around for a minute and then decided to tear off in the other direction because something wasn't feeling right. So he was within one step of getting a shot on this awesome bull who I think was under 50 yards from him. And so it was, it was exciting. It was wonderful, but you know, uh, disappointing, but we decided after that, like, man, yeah, there are elk moving all around in this spot. So we spent the late morning building this, uh, kind of 90 degree brush blind back in that area and uh, decided that, okay, we'll, we'll hunt the rest of the afternoon and evening the way we normally do. But the next morning, day five, we're going to come back to this blind. And so sure enough, nothing happened the rest of that day. We went, uh, hiked out early, went back to that blind. And uh, it, it was like a 90 degree wedge kind of configuration. So we were basically just sitting there watching in our two different directions. And the agreement was kind of like, okay, if a bull comes on, on Zach's side, it's his. If it comes on my side, it's mine. And uh, sitting there for a little while in the morning... Uh, with just, again, like the wind was just not letting up just, but fortunately blowing kind of in our faces, uh, which the paths we were watching that the elk should be traveling, they were all going to be, uh, upwind of us. So perfect. couple hours into the morning, suddenly, uh, you know, we'd seen some cows and stuff coming by, but no bulls yet. And, uh, sure enough, this bull comes walking through on my side, uh, and Zach spotted him first. Then I was, I was on him and, and he was just moving through this timber, uh, about 70, 80 yards from me. And, uh, Zach was kind of letting out some cow calls and, and trying to get them 
interested in coming our direction. A few times, Zach was, was able to get on the cow call, and and this guy would be interested. He would turn our way. He would even come in a little ways, uh, stop and look right at our blind, looking for the cow that was not there, and would turn around and kind of meander back. He wasn't, like, overly spooked or anything, but just kept uh, two or three different times, would, like, turn back around and look our direction, and then upon not seeing a cow, would just continue on with what he was doing. So he, he came in, the closest he got was 60 yards. Uh, and at the time, the bow I was shooting uh, was very, you know, my absolute entry-level beginner bow that I bought on clearance. Uh, it was a great bow. It, it did the job. But uh, the last pin on that thing was 50 yards. So I was, I was maxed out and he didn't come in close enough. And so we watched him eventually just get sick of our cow calls and, and wander back into the timber and bed down 90 yards away from us. So, awesome. My bull, my side, giant wind right in my face. This is great. The only problem is there was a 30-yard clearing between the blind and the timber where he was bedded down in. So for me to to close that gap, I had no reason to believe he was going to get up from his bed and come our direction because he was heading away from us. I figured eventually he's going to get up and just move farther away from us. So it was kind of like now or never on this bull. Hey guys, this is Eric from Late to the Game Outdoors and producer of Hunting Stories. And I wanted to thank Bun and Beanster for making this show possible. These guys are the real deal. Whether you're a seasoned business owner or a startup or running a side hustle like I am, they can help you with your branding, logo, easy to manage websites, and fresh creative ideas for your business. They can also help you look the part by helping you design those tricky one-off events. They deliver amazing printed goods, quality apparel, even signage. Truly a one-stop creative shop. And they stand by their work guaranteed. For free consultations and useful resources, go to bunandbeanster.com to check them out or catch them on Instagram at bunandbeanster. Now back to the show. So I uh, strapped the GoPro on my head and uh, left the main camera back in the blind, just kind of rolling in the direction of where I was going uh, and just kind of decided, okay, I have lots of wind to cover my noise, to, to cover maybe a little bit of movement, uh, but I just need to crawl hands and knees across this clearing and try to get within 50 yards of this bull. Uh, and so as I'm, as I'm going about this, I just like, this feels like my one shot. Like if I blow this, I probably won't get a shot at an elk the rest of the season. Cause we only had uh, a week to hunt. And so as I'm going, I am just moving every stick and pine cone in my path, like a landmine, uh, just painstakingly one step at a time, moving anything that could make noise. And I, I creep all the way through this clearing and get to the first little, like just this little clump of a couple trees. I kind of pop my head up and I can see that the elk is still bedded. Uh, and there's, there's kind of the patch of trees kind of bends around a little bit. And so I kind of crawl along behind it up to the edge of it. And I look up and he's still right there. And I, I range him and he's at 54 yards, which like, okay, that's the last, I could aim a little high and that, that'll still work. Uh, but he's bedded down and he's, I don't know why they do this. They always bed behind a giant dead tree with limbs and stuff poking up. Uh, I mean, I do know why they do that. It's it's safety, it's protection. It's for this exact reason, so I can't shoot him while he's laying there. Uh, but so I, I have no shot on his vitals. And I see like just over, you know, five or so yards, kind of diagonally, sort of close to him, or closer in his direction, there's this another little 
pocket of trees. So I think, okay, I've made it this far. He doesn't seem like he's on alert. He's still laying down. Uh, so let me crawl to that patch of trees. Maybe I'll have a different angle that I can get kind of past some of those limbs. Uh, and at the very least, it'll close the distance to a solid 50 yards. Should be good. So I, I creep over to those trees. And just as I arrive at them, I look up. And to my horror, I see that the elk is now standing up looking right at me. Like he finally, finally caught my movement, finally caught that something fishy is going on. So I rise up to my knees and he's, he's standing there looking right at me, but he's through all this thick timber. Like there's no lane and he's staring right at me. So I don't want to just draw my bow. And so as I like, just sit there, like arrow knocked, ready to go. He, uh, he finally tears off and, and starts to run, uh, from my left to right and as he's running, I just, some like, the instinct, for some reason, I drew my bow. Like, I don't know why I didn't think, oh, he's blowing out, he's gone. But but I just drew my bow as he was running. And sure enough, he ran 10, 15 yards to the side, so he's still about the same distance from me. Uh, but he stops and looks again. Like, he just, that thing that they do sometimes where they blow out and they run 15, 20 yards and stop to look back to see what scared them. He did that. He just did it perpendicular to me. So... I've already drawn, he stops to look at me again, and he just happens to have his vitals in this like 18 inch window between all the trees. And so I, to the best of my recollection, take a deep breath and am careful and going through my whole shot sequence. It's all kind of a blur as it often is in these situations, but was able to just kind of drop the, put the pin right where I wanted it, aimed a little bit high because the last time I had ranged him was 54 and I didn't seem like he'd moved any closer and released the arrow and he was already on edge and that bow is a bit on the slow side uh so as I, i've reviewed the footage of this uh, a thousand times i believe he jumped the string just a little bit like as soon as that the sound of that bow went off he took this big jump like almost like a white-tailed deer and uh and for that reason the the arrow hit him a little far back but as it sailed through the air and as i was watching it I, I could have sworn I thought I saw the arrow sail over the back of him. So I immediately had that just heart sinking like, oh, I can't believe I missed. But as he's running away, I see that blood is starting to pour out of the, the side of him, but a little, a little higher and a little further back than I intended. Again, because he kind of jumped that string. But I'm thinking, oh my gosh, okay, that was, that was a ton of blood. I actually hit him. This is amazing. And I, I watch him kind of run around. He makes this like big U-turn of sorts and goes heading back into the, the woods and I'm sitting there and I have GoPro on my head footage of like my trembling hand trying to find another arrow or trying to knock another arrow. It, it wasn't working. Uh, and it didn't matter because he had run out of sight anyway, but was just so jacked out of my mind. Uh, so I kind of, I took my hat off, marked the tree where I shot, tried to take like a mental image of, okay, he was right there so that we could begin tracking. Head back to the blind where my brother-in-law is and just tell him the story. And it's the usual, you know, sharing hugs and high fives and, and, and all that stuff. And then waiting the longest, you know, 20, 30 minutes of my life just trying to give him time uh, so that if he was taking a little bit to expire, we wouldn't bump him. And so finally the time comes to, to track the blood and, and I get up to where he was standing and there's all these like wild hoof marks from where he had just, you know, jumped like a kangaroo out of that spot when he heard the bow go off. Uh, and then pretty quickly there's, there's a pool of blood and another pool of blood and we get like three or four of those. And then the arrow had gone in a little past halfway and finally had come out. I don't know if he ripped it out or if a tree knocked it out, but once it came out, uh, the blood was just 
insane. Like it was, uh, I don't want to start a debate, but I shoot a mechanical broadhead and it just created, uh, this, this massive wound channel. And as I, I found him, uh, what actually happened is the, the broadhead snipped his femoral. So he was just dumping blood. He didn't make it a hundred yards before he just piled up dead where, uh, where he was. So just so much celebration and excitement. And, you know, as the expression goes, now the work begins. We called my father-in-law who had stayed back at the cabin that day. Cause again, it was windy, uh, and said, Hey, get, uh, get your pack frame. We've got meat to haul. And so he was coming out to meet us while we were cutting everything up and getting it quartered out. And we were three miles from the truck. And it was at this point that I, for the first time ever, decided to unzip the meat compartment in my very budget-friendly Amazon Prime hunting pack I was using and discovered that uh, that opening goes about two inches wide. I don't know what that company thinks people are hauling out of the woods in a meat shelf, uh, but there is no single part of an elk that's going to fit in that. It was uh, a ridiculous and tragic realization at that moment. A uh, lesson to be learned there is to test your gear before you're in the field. Uh, but uh, my father-in-law came and he had his pack frame, which I remember helping him rig this up this year, and that year. And initially, like the plan was it was to be used to haul his tree stand into the woods like the tree stand itself had these little nylon straps that you could use, but those were super uncomfortable and like cut off circulation and stuff. So I don't know where he, what, what like torture supply store he found this, but it was this plastic frame. Uh, and then like he bought these look like military surplus, like civil war bandage style belt and shoulder straps that we kind of tied and buckled to these different points on this frame. So it's absolutely this like Frankenstein little pack thing. And so even though my pack isn't going to work to haul large quantities of meat, it's my elk and I'm the dude with the young back. So I should be hauling a uh, bulk of the weight. So my father-in-law decided to switch packs. So I took the back straps and neck meat and a few miscellaneous pieces and shoved them in that microscopic meat compartment on my pack and gave it to my father-in-law. I took a boned in hind quarter and front quarter and literally ratchet strapped it to that plastic torturous frame and put that on my back to haul it three miles back to the truck. And it was hands down the most miserable three miles of my life. Like everything on that pack hurt so bad. Uh, the just the weight was off center. It the padding was virtually non-existent. I could hear the plastic frame like bending and like cracking in places. It just it was not designed for this kind of a load. Uh, and so just barely made it out of those woods, got back to the truck. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's all celebration from there. You've got, uh, you've got antlers at camp, you're cutting up meat, you're eating steaks, you're actually, fun fact, uh, we took the Rocky Mountain oysters, which are testicles, uh, along with all the meat. And my brother-in-law is kind of a, a foodie type guy, just whipped up this recipe that I think he made up on the spot where he breaded them and fried them in like bacon grease and then made this sriracha aioli sauce. I think that's how you say it. It was just hands down one of the most delicious fried snacks I've ever had in my life. And from here on out, whenever I kill a bull or even a deer or something with large enough cojones, I'm going to be taking those and using that recipe because it was amazing. So any lessons to be pulled from that hunt are to, uh, to not be afraid to adapt your strategy. Um, as we were just trying to stay on foot and stay mobile and call, we weren't having a lot of luck. So we decided to build a blind and, and go that way. And it happened to pan out. 
Uh, also, I said it before, but test your gear. If you uh, haven't opened a meat compartment until you have meat on the ground, you may find yourself sorely disappointed. Uh, and mine I also recommend now, several years later, uh, the XO Mountain Gear Pack. I am not endorsed by them, I'm not affiliated with them, but I have been using their pack now for over a year and it is hands down the greatest pack I've ever worn. So I'll put a link to their website in the description, but if you haven't heard of them or haven't checked it out, yes, it has a steep price tag, but it is worth every single penny, I can promise you. So this story is already close to going over the time that I promised I would keep to, so I'm gonna cut it off here. And we will be back next time with another great hunting story. And as always, please subscribe, leave a, leave a review, would be so helpful to me. And uh, anything you want to hear more about or a guest idea you have, uh, hit me up and we'll, uh, we'll get that set up. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hunting Stories. And if you want to stay up on what we're doing with the podcast or anything else going on with Late to the Game, Go ahead and check us out at latetothegameoutdoors.com or give us a follow on Instagram at latetothegameoutdoors. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.